studied writing, I studied the blade. While you were having critique sessions, I mastered the parry. While you wasted your days at writing workshops in pursuit of sentence craft, I cultivated gripped strength. And now that you're trying to write an epic fantasy novel and you don't know how to handle swordplay, you have the audacity to come to me for help? Well, you're in the right place. In this episode of Write Good, we are talking about swords. We are joined by Johannes Heidner of the Academy of European Swordsmanship. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. <laughs> Hi. Sorry. <laughs> I have to laugh at that intro. You know why? Because <laughs> it's, it's so cliché. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that's why you do it, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, before you came on, you mentioned that every sword person has swapped a lot of I studied the blade jokes. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Especially the people who are older, like myself, who are still doing this, because most of us are published writers, academics, things like that. So Nice. You know... <laughs> Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your experience with swords? I started doing swordsmanship back in the late 80s. It was an interest. I wanted something other than the Japanese or Chinese because I just didn't fit in with the culture. I thought, well, hmm. what else can we find? I got lucky enough to find a guy in Calgary who was trying to figure some of this stuff out from... The old manuscripts and he and I studied for a while doing this stuff and then I fell in with a group called the Society for Creative Anachronism and tried some of their stuff for a few years but some of them don't like to hear this and some say yeah this is absolutely true they're a big role-playing society oh yeah right and that just wasn't my thing it wasn't into the live role-playing so much I mean it was fun and some people were good but I didn't enjoy the game as much and especially their fighting game because it wasn't a martial art, and that's what I was looking for. By 1994, myself and a few other people from that group, we had discovered actual treatise on swordsmanship that was written in the 1400s. So we formed a university club, and that's where it went from there. Well, that's really cool. It didn't occur to me that you would actually study swordplay based on old manuscripts, but I guess that does make sense. So you actually did study the blade, academically. Yep. <laughs> we did, yeah. <laughs> we were all university students, and I'm the only original member left. After about a year, I de facto took over the teaching because I was the one with a teaching degree, so I got pushed into that role. <laughs> Now, how do you get techniques out of a manuscript? Like, are there diagrams in there? The one we had was more diagrams than text. So sometimes it took a lot of experimentation and trial and error to figure out what exactly they meant. Because they'd have a description in there. Like, the swordsman on the right does this, and the swordsman on the left counters by doing this. And it's like, okay, but what do those terms mean? And here's the picture, and here's how it ends. So let's see if we can figure out how they did that from body positions and so forth. Huh. And, of course, there were other groups around the world who were doing this as well. There was another group in Toronto called the Academy of European Medieval Martial Arts that started around about the same time we did. I think our club actually started about four months earlier than they did. So that's pretty close in time, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't meet them 
for five years because I didn't know they existed. So, and that's when the internet started to take off. Was in the late nineties, right? And that's how yeah. we discovered they existed, and vice versa. And we, uh, uh, some other clubs around North America, people met over the internet, and we decided to have a conference down in the states and meet up and exchange knowledge. That's really cool. Yeah. So that happened in summer of 2000. So you're pretty experienced with swords, studying swords, using swords, practicing. Do you do sword fighting competitions? Do you spar? Yes, we do. Our school has a tournament coming up at the beginning of October on the Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, it's the longest running tournament in Canada. We're the first ones to have one like that. And I can't even remember when we started. Probably 2003? Maybe 2002? Yeah, so you've been at this for a good long while. That's cool. That's very cool. The reason we'd love to talk to you is because a lot of our listeners are fantasy writers, and a lot of fantasy involves swords. There's usually a magic sword. Swords are extremely important in historical fantasy novels or second world fantasy novels. And I'm gonna guess that most of the people who read and write these books don't really use swords in their daily life, haven't really <laughs> studied swordsmanship. I sure don't know how to use a sword. I don't know anything about swords. And I'm gonna guess most of them write stuff based on what they see from movies from Hollywood, which is also written and designed by people who don't really study martial arts either and so yeah. we've just got this long chain of people who don't know what they're doing writing for other people who don't know what they're doing <laughs> that sorry that made me think of tony wolf he did some of the choreography for the lord of the rings movies mm. he's also a western martial artist a swordsman and back when those were done there were online forums and we would he would talk with some of the other people in the community and people say, why did you do this? Why did this happen? He says, guys, it's Hollywood. I only have so much power. <laughs> I can't do things, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess there's a lot of things where I know this isn't realistic, but it looks really cool, so you got to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. So some of what they're doing in there is absolutely accurate, which is really cool. And some of it is just complete fantasy, right? Yeah. Let's talk about some areas where a lot of fantasy writers get things wrong about swords. Let's start with really basic day-to-day -day stuff like maintenance. How do swords need to be maintained, repaired, cleaned, etc.? These are pieces of equipment that see a lot of use, and like any other bit of equipment, you gotta take care of it. So if you're a swordsman, how are you taking care of your sword, typically? What are you doing? Typically, I'm hanging it on the wall when it's not in use, so that rather than in a sheath, because most sheaths are not designed for storage, they're designed for transport. Huh. The issue with those is if they're not designed for storage, they can trap moisture in there, which is bad for your blade. Oh. Simple as that. Those that are designed for storage, they're typically oiled on the inside so that that counters any moisture. Very simple solution, but most sheaths and, and scabbards are not done that way. Huh. To maintain it, uh, after any serious use, I will give it a cleaning, which involves modern materials, uh, WD-40. Um, in period, uh, would have used something, some other kind of oil, but not a cooking oil, something that doesn't biodegrade, because hmm. otherwise it smells. And afterwards, you would coat it with what today is sold as archivist's wax. So what they use in museums to preserve the finish on metal. Hmm. So what would an olden times person 
use you clean it you use some kind of oil on it and and then you use the wax it yep Mm. there were oil cloths made specifically for cleaning where you take the oil cloth is actually not cloth it was a very fine piece of leather soft off could be made from cow could be made from goat i have some that i use too for light cleaning and then they're soaked in oil and then they're stored in such a way that the oil doesn't get all over everything and you use those to clean your swords you can also use slightly rough materials like today we use a brillo pad uh, like what you use for washing dishes to clean off the rougher spots to see if you get a little bit of rust or something on there Uh, back then they probably would have used some kind of steel wool or even copper wool Hmm. and how about keeping it sharp repairing it just a honing stone And repairing it, you take it to the smith. How often are you, like, sharpening it? Do you need to do that every use or just do it regularly or what? We hold three to four cutting practices every year. So that's taking a sword and getting 20 to 30 people practicing cutting with these different swords that we have. So depending on the sword, they get used more often. Those that are used most often get sharpened about once a year. Those that aren't used quite as often, probably every other year so. It gives you an idea of the actual amount of use and sharpening they need. Oh. Now, I imagine if you're using it in battle, you'd want to maintain your sword every time and then check its edge. And if it needs sharpening, sharpen it. Okay. Whenever it's needed is the best answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. And I'm sure an epic fantasy hero guy is using it a lot, so he's sharpening it way more often. Yeah, which wears your sword out quicker too, right? Because when you're sharpening it, you're not just flattening the edges down. You're actually taking a tiny bit of metal off. Mm. Now, how about carrying it? How does a typical swordsman carry his sword when it's not in use? Does he run around with it like on his belt? Is it across his back? Is he sticking it in his knapsack when he's not immediately like getting ready for a fight? Like where on your body? Well, you don't carry it on your back because you can't pull it out. Okay. Okay, stick your arm above your head. Is that longer than the sword? If not, then you're not pulling the sword off your back. So Zelda is not accurate. No. (laughs) If you watch the movies, they carry them around, and then they never show them actually drawing the sword because the guy can't do it. (laughs) There is an online personality, a couple of them, who've made custom modern hilts that they can do that with, but that was not historical. So They would be carried on the hip, in a sheath or a scabbard or a ring, depending on the person and the purpose. If it's just carried in a ring or a frog, which is something specific for uh, something like a rapier, which isn't very sharp for most of its blade, then you got to remember you've got a bare sword there. So you have to be more careful what you do with that sharp blade hanging around. Okay, so maybe before we go on, what's the difference between a sheath, a scabbard, and a ring or a, f- a frog, you said? A frog is a leather holder that's only a few inches long and you put the sword through it it's kind of like a scabbard but it's only part of it okay and a frog can also be designed to hold a scabbard or a sheath so okay okay now the difference between a sheath and a scabbard is a sheath is made out of just leather so you hold it in there so they tend not to be very firm Mm -hmm. whereas a scabbard has a firm core on it which is typically wood okay well, that's good, because I, I didn't know that. I know that those were both words for things you put a sword in, but I didn't yeah. know. I know this is hypothetical, but, you know, say you're Aragorn running around trying to get where he needs to go. Are you going to, like, carry the sword in the knapsack, or is that at your hip the entire time? 
Because I could imagine it being kind of a pain to like carry it on you like that. Yeah, well, you would probably have to consider your environment. If you're expecting orcs to come out of the woods at any moment, you're going to want it on your hip so you can get at it quickly. Whereas if it's on your backpack, it takes a whole lot longer to get it out, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, that makes sense. What do you do there? Knights used to, you know, oh yeah, we know we're going to battle. Squire, carry my sword. Yeah. Or they'd have a sheath or a scabbard right on the saddle of their horse so they could pull it out. Yeah. And for them, a sword isn't their primary weapon. Usually a spear or a lance is. Mm. Okay. We're probably going to talk a little bit more about that later, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit about the design. A lot of fantasy writers and artists love to give the hero or like the really big villain a really ornate, cool-looking sword with like jewels or a curved blade or a serrated edge or a lot of extra pointy bits in the hilt. How impractical or practical is any of this? Uh, let's start with the jewels. There are lots of examples of short swords that have inlay in them. Even jewels. Jewels are not so much, but inlay, because it's another metal, it tends to be rather sturdy. You've got to consider that when you're fighting, your sword could be hit anywhere, which includes hit, hit on the pommel. And you should be wearing some kind of hand protection, which is what gauntlets are about. Mm. right? And if you're fighting without gauntlets or very least gloves, then your hand's more vulnerable. Yeah. You've got to be a better fighter. There are, in some of the treatises, you can see differences in sword positions so basically your guard depending on the intent of what they're doing if it's ernstfesten which means they're fighting in earnest to kill or maim the other person they tend to hold the bat hands further back whereas if it's more tournament oriented the hands tend to be more forward because you can hit quicker and you don't have to worry about your hands being tripped mm. so there's that for the hands and how that plays out in the decorated swords is if it's ornately decorated, this is more expensive. It shows status the more decorated it is. And a lot of times those were worn for court or show. And while they are practical blades, they were not something you would take to battle. Right, that makes sense. So let's talk about a couple of more sword-related terms that people might misuse. I have heard people refer to something in a sword called a blood groove what actually is a blood groove? Is there such a thing as a blood groove? There is no such a thing as a blood groove. The groove that you see in swords is designed so that the sword can maintain its strength while becoming lighter. If you know what an I-beam is, which is in construction, right. they're designed so that the center is hollower, but they still maintain the strength to hold up a building. It's the same thing with the sword. That's what that curve is for, is so that you can have the strength of the full metal but make it a little bit lighter so you're faster. It was originally called a fuller groove because the hand tool that was used to put the groove in there, it was called a fuller. Nowadays, the parlance has become, you just call it a fuller or a groove. Mm. There are some later period swords that don't have a groove and use a similar principle, but they make the edges thinner on the sword and the center rises up, so they have a riser rather than a groove. Okay. Which also makes them lighter. Those are more of a diamond-shaped blade, those ones. Huh, neat. Now, what's the difference between the hilt, the handle, and the grip? The hilt is the whole assembly, which includes the, the handle, the pommel, the grip, and the guard. Depending on the language you're speaking, the guard, you might hear quillions, which is the French word. You might just hear it called a guard in English, or cross, or cross guard. Some people call it a hilt, but 
that term was not used historically, mm. just for the guard itself, because the hilt was the whole assembly historically. The handle, of course, that's the thing you hold on to. And the grip is just the covering on the handle. So my grip might be made out of leather, for example. Or it might be made out of ray skin if you're using a Japanese sword. The pommel, well, that's the very end, the counterbalance on the sword. And the shape and weight of those varies so much that there's probably hundreds of them. Mm. And those can be very individualized as well. I see. All right. Now, a little bit about sword making. There are very, very many scenes in fantasy where someone is forging a sword, and they do this in some very cool, very impressive, usually in some kind of volcanic-looking blacksmiths, where they take liquid metal and they pour it into a groove in an anvil that's shaped like a very cool sword. Is that how you forge a sword? By, like, pouring liquid metal into a really cool groove? No. No. Swords, you can you can have a cool groove that's your ingot that you would forge the sword from, and that would be very common once the metallurgy got to the point where you're mixing the metal and it can get consistent. However, that wasn't very common before the Industrial Age. So instead what they're doing is they're mixing bars of metal, which is where we get our Damascus look from. The first recorded instances we have of that are the ancient Celts, but they lost the technology and then the Vikings, and a few hundred years later, the uh, Japanese. And that's why they get all those pretty designs on there. Now, once metallurgy got better, you'd get more plain swords, and this, of course, is your later Middle Ages. And they're still inconsistent, not like today, where we can get this beautiful blank where the metal is completely consistent all the way through, whereas they poured their ink it. You'd have some impurities and parts and whatever, so you'd have one part of the sword that might chip, whereas another part might be a little softer or harder. That's just the metal quality and technology, right? Mm. So you take the ingot, your blacksmith would heat it, he'd hammer it into the shape, because hammering it removes some of those impurities, which is nice. Huh. You get it to the basic shape so it's almost done, and then they would do what's called stock removal today, which is where they're sanding or filing off any extra bits and polishing it down and sharpening the edge. Okay. Hmm. Um, it got to a point where production swords in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, they, uh, you've heard the term, you put your nose to the grinding wheel. Right. There were actually factories in places like Toledo, Italy, where they had these grinding wheels that were 10, 12 feet tall, and the platform of the... Uh, person finishing the sword would lay down and then grind it on that giant wheel which is run by a water mill and wow. that grinding would be the finishing part of a sword because they're they're getting a sword blank that's mostly done to finish it that way huh all right so you basically you take a solid piece of metal an ingot and you hammer it into a sword you don't like pour liquid metal into a sword yeah, mold that's right okay all right how many people back in the day in, I guess, medieval times were actually carrying swords? Was everyone just, like, walking around with a sword all the time? No, swords were uncommon. Do you think most countries have people carrying guns around all the time? Well, I mean, America, yes. <laughs> Depending. In the South. Even in America, people don't walk around with their guns on their hips all the time. They might own them. They're back at home for whatever reason, whether it's hunting or whatever, right? Swords are expensive. A quality sword 
could take someone a week to make for their whole labor. How expensive is that going to be? And this isn't just anyone that could do it. They were trained for years, so this is a skilled blacksmith doing it. Later on, you might get some factory blacksmith who's making poor quality swords at the demand of his knight or king in order to arm backup swords for his archers, for example. So those aren't going to be great swords. You know, they're not going to hold an edge well, or they might bend easy, or they might rust easier, whatever the quality is, because those are mostly made by the apprentices, and they're cheaper. Whereas a knight's sword would be the highest quality. Nobody's going to be walking around with those except for the knights and nobility. You can tell the difference in the quality of the swords when you see them. Did armies go into battle with lots of swords, or were there way more like spear guys, flail guys, archers, and stuff like that? Spear was the most common weapon. It's cheap, it's easy to train, and uh, of course you've also got a distance on it. Swords, again, those are backup. They might have them on their hip, but it's not going to be a great quality sword for your spearmen, unless they're wealthy themselves. If you look at the tapestries and the pictures from the period, you'll often see the big crowds of spearmen, and they're only partially armored. And some of them will have swords on their hips, some will have hammers, some will have nothing, big knife, whatever. But they all have their spears. Now, as for knights, their primary weapon was typically a lance or spear, and they would have other backup weapons, including swords, because, well, there's a prestige with the sword, and they're trained to use it properly. Training with a sword is the biggest issue because it takes a lot of training to get good with it. As for other weapons, like pole hammers and maces and those kind of things, they're they're fairly common as well. And again, cheaper to make than swords. So you're not going to ride into battle with a sword, most likely. You're going to ride in with a, a lance or a spear. Yeah, well, you'll have your sword with you. Yeah. Because you yeah. need that. Like, what happens if your spear breaks or gets knocked out of your hand? Well, you better have that sword by. Okay, so that's a backup weapon, mainly. For the it most would... part, swords are backup weapons, yeah. So what do you mean by not by for the most part? It's like what? Well, because if you're going into duels, that kind of thing, then, of course, they're your primary weapon. Mm. Except in, like, the Vikings ritualized duels, they actually started with spears, and I don't remember the full thing on it. I know they got three shields each, which tells you that the quality of the shields they were expected to break, right? Right. I remember reading about them. Most often it got down to the point where the spears were gone because they also got, depending on the duel, anywhere from one to three spears. And usually those were not useful anymore and it ended up going sword to sword. Mm. They do this really well in the 13th Warrior. Right. I remember I remember that movie got bad reviews, but like every dude I've met says, that movie rules. Well, that part of the movie was really well done. That <laughs> Where they did the duel, it was really well done. There's lots of parts of the movie that I think, this is just silly. <laughs> yeah. <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> So the sword is the backup, the spear is like your main one for most guys, unless of course you're yep. an archer, in which case obviously it's your bow and arrow. Yeah. What happens when you try to chop non-flesh things, like a tree, or perhaps the rope holding up a very big candelabra that will drop dramatically onto your enemy while you hold onto the rope and swing also very dramatically across the room to escape? Well, the rope will get cut. Mm-hmm. Whether you can swing or not, well, that's a whole other issue, and we're not getting into that. <laughs> yeah. 
ropes are sometimes used as, at least modernly, as ways to test your cutting to how sharp the sword is. Of course, they're bigger and heavier, so they have some mass behind them. If they're not, then they just move out of the way when you swing at them because they don't have the mass to keep their inertia, right? Mm -hmm. Trees, I wouldn't want to try to chop a tree with my sword because it's just going to make little cuts in it. It's not designed for chopping wood. It's designed for chopping flesh or stabbing through armor. So Mm. that's why axes are designed the way they are. They're much heavier on the end. They have a specific angle of their cut uh, in order to chop wood much better. Now, if I took a, a tree limb, a green tree limb, depending on the type of tree, say a maple, and uh, cut that with a sword, and that is about the same size as my wrist, it's probably equivalent to cutting my wrist. Mm. But the wood will dull your sword really fast. Right. As for axes, your wood axe... While it will kill you, it's not a very good fighting weapon. A fighting axe will have a different profile, so it'll be a much narrower axe blade, Mm. and they often were much longer on the front edge, designed, again, to cut flesh, and they were terrible at cutting trees. I know, I've tried, just to see what it looked. (laughs) Huh. (laughs) But they cut flesh really, really, really well, and bone. So. Huh. All right. Now, you, you added a note to the episode outline about how sword design is a product of materials available. Yes, yes. In there, I use the example of a Japanese katana. The Japanese katana is much thicker and heavier on the back and probably heavier than most people realize when they hold a, a properly made katana. It's not like the, the mall ninja ones that are super <laughs> yeah. light. Okay. They're actually a hefty sword. They weigh as much as a European longsword. So they're a good three pounds, sometimes more. And Japan didn't have a lot of access to good quality steel. So that's why they did the folding method to get rid of impurities. That's part of why they made it thick, because then it's not going to bend so easily. And when they tempered their swords, they were straight before they went into the clay for tempering and firing. And their method of doing that, which I'm not super familiar with, cause that curve in the blade which everybody's so familiar with and i think that's really cool because it's just i don't know if it was planned or a happy accident it's just it's so neat that the curve comes out it just without forging a curve into it just by the heating and cooling oh wow i didn't know that so, whereas the european swords most of them are straight they're much thinner to keep the lightness of the blade, which means that when you're cutting, there's less forgiveness in your sword dynamics and how you place the edge. If you have a heavier, thicker sword and the edge is slightly off, you're still going to cut because your sword's not going to wobble or bend while cutting. Whereas the European swords, you have to have that much more properly lined, so your technique has to be much more precise for those types of swords. So it sounds like the katana offers certain advantages. Are there advantages to the more European style sword? They're lighter, they're faster, they tended to be a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So say I got an 8-inch reach on you, that makes a huge difference in a sword oh, yeah. fight. So it's amazing to discover how much reach makes a difference. The reach makes more difference than just about anything else. Which is, of course, the Europeans knew that, which is why rapiers ended up getting so long towards the end of that period because mm. oh well he's got a 48 inch rapier i'm gonna make mine 52 inches which you would see <laughs> that is ridiculously large 
Yeah, that's the whole sword, right? I've heard there are longer blades, but I haven't seen one. Yeah, because, I mean, it'd be handier to fight with, but then you got to deal with the practicality of how are you going to carry a six-foot-long rapier? Like, how are you going to walk around? I don't know if there's ever been a six-foot-long rapier. <laughs> you know, or something There ridiculous. were six-foot-long swords, like your, your two-handers, your spy-handers or montantes, depending on which culture you're from. Those, they don't even bother shooting. They just carry them over their shoulders. They're walking into battle. Yeah. And you'll see lots of pictures of the Doppler soldier doing that. So carrying a sword that's as long as a human being is tall. Yep. Very tall. So, <laughs> so basically you look like Cloud Strife. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think we touched on this a little bit, but like typically how heavy is a sword? And also, can a small woman wield a claymore or a broadsword? I'm sure there is a lot of intense message board discussion about that second question. Oh, I'm sure there is. How heavy is a sword depends on the sword. Yeah. Now, I don't know how much your listeners know the difference between the types of swords. A long sword is the most common knightly sword after once you start getting into the plate mail era because that is a two-handed sword primarily that can also be used with one hand. Um, that total sword length was, I'd say, on average about 48 to 51 inches. And those weighed, on average, about two and a half to three pounds. So they're pretty light. That's not a lot. Whereas an arming sword, which is the one-handed sword that you see people using with shields, yeah. again, it's got the typical cruciform, the cross guard, with no fancy bling on, like wires coming around, what have you, to protect your hand. Those were two to two and a half pounds. So you can see there's a little bit of crossover and weight there. Whereas if you get into the bigger swords, like the two-handers, my replica weighs almost eight pounds. Mm. Now, it's a copy of an antique, as close as they can make it, given modern materials. Supposedly it weighs about three ounces more than the antique one did, which is probably just because of the consistency of the metal, because the measurements are all the same. Um, something like that, my sword is five foot seven inches tall i think and i can't see a five foot woman swinging that around unless she's super fit and super strong for her size because leverage is a thing too right i mean obviously uh, an average woman can lift something that weighs eight pounds but being able to really carefully you know quickly yeah but swing that thing out at arm's length and you're going to get exhausted i do and i'm five foot ten and 200 pounds so so unless she's like really fucking jacked yeah unless she's jacked <laughs> which is possible plus you can have a, a sword designed long and thin so it's lighter for the smaller person all right so maybe she's wielding a six pound sword or a five and a half pound sword instead of a, a seven or eight pound sword like i would be using okay right right and i mean i've seen fit women who are skilled take on guys way bigger than them just because they're faster and better at what they do. It's the same thing with a heavy one-handed sword, such as a Scottish broadsword. The basket can make those quite heavy. So you would have to design that according to the wielder. My basket hilt sword weighs just over three pounds, whereas I have a student and he's much thinner uh, skinnier and smaller than I am, and he had his sword made specifically for him, and it weighs just a little over two and a half pounds. Mm. So he's got smaller hands. I can't fit my hand inside his basket. I see. That sword for him is fantastic, and 
he'll kick my butt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so bigger sword isn't necessarily better. No, not necessarily. No. I mean, when we read the documents about the swords, bigger is better in a sense that a great sword is certainly going to take out a long sword or a single-handed sword. We've done sparring matches in class with the senior students to see how the swords fare against each other, knowing that, okay, these four guys, they're all the same skill level. Give one of them a two-handed sword and give the other three long swords. And it is about three to one. So let's talk a little bit about types of sword for your situation or your fighting style. Can you talk a little bit briefly, a little bit more about like a different type of sword and how you might use one? Like what would you use for a sparring match versus like a duel versus like two people are legitimately trying to kill each other? A lot of duels, they were legitimately trying to kill each other. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, duels were such that they usually had to agree on the weapons beforehand. And they could be different. It could be the same depending on what the agreement was or what their laws were at the time. There's even in a couple of the treatises that we have specifics about the laws about duels between a man and a woman, mm. which is fascinating because to equalize that out, the man had to stand into a pit that was as deep as his waist, and he was using a club that was usually about three feet long, and the woman was out on the ground around him, and she got to use a shawl the same length as his club, but inside the shawl she had wrapped up a rock weighing three to four pounds. Oh, wow. And there were different conditions to win the duel, too. Like, if he dragged her into the hole, he won. If she pulled him out, she won. So you didn't have to kill him in that duel. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. There are places online that say, well, this is a duel between a husband and a wife, but when you read the original, it just says between a man and a woman. It doesn't say husband and wife, necessarily. Oh, wow. I want to know the circumstances that led to this. Yeah. It's in German, so it says Mann und Frau, and those two words can mean husband and wife or man and woman. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, so you don't know. Yeah, so <laughs> I prefer to think man and woman rather than husband and wife because you know, it makes more sense to me that it would be the broader spectrum of that. As for other duels, rapier dueling was a big problem at one point in time and outlawed in a lot of countries because too many people were dying. And so often what would happen is one person would die in the duel and another person would die several days later from the infection from their wounds. Oh. Which is no good, right? All your young men are dying because they're out dueling each other. Yeah. War weapons tend to be more the things like the sword and shield, spears, especially spears, battle axes, long swords, and there's a special type of soldier called a doppel soldier. They were the ones who used the big two-handed swords out in battle. Mm. And there's a few different theories about how those were used in battle. Some were saying that they were to break pike formations. Others think they were tr shock troops. Personally, I think it's not one or the other that there's some of both and maybe other things as well. So now let's get down to it and talk about fights. Like, how long might a typical sword fight or duel actually last? Obviously, Hollywood loves to make them these long, protracted, elaborate things. But like, how long might it actually last? To give you an idea, in our tournaments for the pools, the matches are 90 seconds. Yeah. In those 90 seconds, you can have 10 or 12 different passes where people score. Yeah. In the final rounds, they're 
sometimes limited to 60 seconds. That's of actual fight time, because if there's a pause or something, the clock stops, right? Right. So they can be really quick, or they can be drawn out. We used to not have a clock on them, because when you got to the higher levels, the guys, most of the time, they're just spent dancing around each other, trying to figure out where the other guy's going to make a mistake, poking at to make holes, rather than actually, you know, crossing swords per se. So a lot of it is psychological, a lot of it's trying to position, jockey for the right position when you're at the high level, and those take longer. But even then, they don't take, you know, they don't take hours. Right. You're talking minutes. Yeah. During a fight, how often are you actually locking swords? You know, how often are swords actually dramatically crashing off each other? Often enough that there are whole sections in the different treatises on how to deal with the bind, which is where the two swords come together and they're stuck together. Mm. So winding and binding is a major part of swordsmanship. Yeah. How do you wind out of a bind in order to take advantage of the other person? That kind of thing. Well, how much of it is like dodging, studying the other person's movements? I'd say most of it is dodging, studying the other person's movements. But once you're together, probably a third of that is the bind. Huh. And now the cat is yelling, yes, Harley. What? What, baby? What? What do you want? Do you want to complain? Yeah, he just wants to complain. Okay. So, how often do you dramatically twirl during a sword fight? Ideally, never. (laughs) Twirling is a good way to get stabbed in the back. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, why would you turn your back to your opponent? It leaves you very vulnerable. The best place to be in a fight is behind your opponent. Right. So. Now, a lot of fantasy writers, unfortunately, <laughs> draw on Hollywood for inspiration when writing sword fights. So what are some really typical things that you see in movies that make you go, like, come on, man, no. Great, huge, wide swings. Because mm. when you're doing that, you're opening yourself up and it's harder to defend. You can't really block where somebody else, oh, you've got the big, huge, wide swing. He'll do an efficient straight cut or stab and you don't have time to get back. That's one of the things that bugs me the most because you'll see two guys out there and they're doing these great big swings ah, ah, at each other and that just doesn't happen. And they're more like quick, quick little cuts than they are big swings. Mm-hmm. What else? The thing where they press the swords together and stare at each other's faces while they're holding the swords like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's like, no, I'd, I'd be headbutting him or throwing him to the ground and then stabbing him. Mm-hmm comes in that close could you kick someone if they're that close that might be a little too close for kicking but yeah you can kick someone it certainly is something that happens like could you kick the other guy in the groin could you knee him in the groin yeah there's a picture in one of the treatises where the two guys are locked together with their hands above their heads and at about 45 degrees of their arms both of them Mm. and one of them is kicking the other one in the stomach nice so yeah it was done historically and it's been done in tournaments today, too. Was there as much of a worry about fighting dirty in those types of fights? If you win, it's not dirty. <laughs> so, like, hitting below the belt is fine? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there, there, there's one where I was translating one treatise, and it said to hit him in the maker. And I didn't know what that meant. And it was like, 
maker maker that i went oh the light bulb went off okay i get it <laughs> okay so like nut shots are totally fine yep <laughs> <laughs> there's even one where you throw the guy to the ground and it says to drop your knee as hard as you can into his maker wow so that rocks <laughs> lord of the rings would have been way better if that had happened <laughs> like if aragorn had just kicked someone in the nuts <laughs> yeah that would be sick <laughs> maybe that's how Eowyn won that fight maybe <laughs> or like what's the, the the little hobbit dude who helps her out he's in like perfect position for that yeah but he stabbed him in the ankle or something didn't he probably <laughs> <laughs> have you seen any movies or books where you thought hey actually that did pretty good there's some select things the duelist is probably overall the best one for sword fighting there are individual fights I see in different things. Like in Rob Roy, when he goes to the moneylender, and there's a very short fight there. I love that one because it's probably the most realistic fight I've seen in any movie. But it only lasts about 10 seconds, hmm. if that. And as I said, the duelist, there's lots of really good fight scenes in that one. They use proper swordsmanship for the most part. Hmm. No books come to mind. Most of the fight stuff that I find good in books... They just talk about the approach, and then they gloss over what happens, and then stabbed him in the throat in the end, you know, right? several blocks. So they kind of don't really get into the details of the fight, but then you get the idea of the fight more than that. So you can fill it in with your imagination. And yeah. those I really like. Mm. You did mention that the 13th Warrior actually did pretty good. Yeah, and the dueling part there for the Vikings, they did that historically right. Uh, that, that's what I really liked about it. And... They showed the difference between a really skilled fighter versus one who's not so skilled. What are some other things that you'd want to caution writers to keep in mind when trying to write a sword fight scene? Like, don't forget about this part. Don't forget about that part. Don't do this thing. One thing that drives me nuts, especially in artwork, is when fantasy artists and fantasy writers have a sword shatter. When swords break, they typically break in two pieces. Mm. It's just one clean line because of the crystalline structure of metal. They don't shatter into all kinds of pieces. They're not glass. Mm -hmm. They're metal. Metal breaks, it snaps. Simple as that. Have you ever snapped a piece of metal? That's how swords break. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's usually along a stress line that's somewhere in there that's been there for several fights. You don't see it because it's microscopic. And then it hits just the right spot and that stress line cracks open and ping! The end of your sword goes flying off. That's one thing that drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember you mentioned infection. I feel like that's yes. a kind of forgotten thing. Well, there were weapons like the rapiers and rondels. Rondels, a type of dagger that had a round or triangular blade. Those were designed so that it's really hard to deal with the wound. And, of course, if you can't deal with the wounds, particularly gut wound, infections are a thing, and people died we even have problems with those kind of wounds today with our modern medicine let alone three four five six hundred years ago or more so i know this was like before germ theory but did people ever take advantage of the infection thing like did people ever put gross stuff on their swords oh yeah there's stories of guys dipping their swords and shit going out to the duel and knowing that even if they lose at least the other guy's gonna die and okay it gets a little cut so they knew at least enough about infection. They knew yeah. that much. Okay. Yeah. I know medicine and germ theory wasn't so big back then, but... Yeah. 
But even the Native North Americans, some of the tribes would do that and stick their arrowheads in buffalo dunks when, when they're fighting, make sure that their enemy died, even if they did later. Oh, man. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. really fighting <laughs> dirty. <laughs> no pun intended, right? <laughs> yeah, that's biological warfare. Yeah. <laughs> that's intense. Oh, gosh. So we've been talking about an hour. Before we wind down, do you have anything you'd like to plug or promote? Yeah, my school, the Academy of European Swordsmanship. Um, we're at swordsmanship.ca. I think we have links to our Instagram and YouTube on there as well. I've written a couple books, one of which is about swordsmanship. So I can, I'm on Amazon with that. And I sell swords and sword stuff related to Western martial arts uh, or historical European martial arts, HEMA. That company is Sword Gear. And our nonprofit martial arts school gets great benefit from that because all the proceeds go to the nonprofit school. Well, that's cool. I should also ask would you recommend that someone trying to learn a little bit? like maybe a writer who wants to write fantasy if if i wanted to sort of live it and like i decided okay you know what i'm gonna take a couple of sword fighting lessons just so that i can write it better like do you have any recommendations of what i would look for where i should where i would go is that even feasible for someone who's like a middle-aged bureaucrat who's not in great shape like myself perhaps i got two students who are 64 years old so yeah, you can do it, regardless of age. And these two guys say, yeah, I'm going to keep doing it till the day I can't. So hopefully that'll be another 20 years. And I also have students who are as young as 13. So any age can join. There are schools all over the world. I can't remember the name of the site right now, but there are a couple of sites that say have HEMA school binders. There's also the resource called Wiktenauer, where you can find treatises and I wouldn't be surprised if they have a link to one of those sites where you can find the different schools um, throughout the world, whether it's your Great Britain, America, Canada, Australia, wherever. There's even schools in China. So. Nice, nice. Well, thanks very much for coming on and taking the time to talk to us about swords. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Um, and thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash write good and subscribe. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysteezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysteezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. Kittysteezes.com in color. <laughs>